five buckets. I was like, we need buckets. And so yeah. I just purchased a ton of buckets and they're just sitting on our porch. No, two of them are in use. Like buckets to carry the baby? Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology, a new podcast for the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo, and I am pleased to be co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Matt Fox from Boston University. Hi, Matt. Am I supposed to say uh, thanks for having me back? Oh, ha, ha, ha. Very funny, Matt. Today, we welcome Dr. Anusha Vable to the podcast. Anusha is an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Vable's research is focused on social epidemiology with a focus on identifying scalable population level solutions to racial and socioeconomic health disparities. Much of her research examines the effect of education and educational interventions on age-related outcomes. Anusha has methodologic expertise in causal inference techniques, novel approaches for identifying heterogeneous treatment effects, and matching methods. We're excited to have you here today to talk about matching with us, including propensity scores. So welcome to Serious Epidemiology. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Great. And we're really excited to talk about this topic because I think it's something that many people, students, faculty, anyone working in epidemiology is interested in and could stand to learn a little bit more about. So we're looking forward to that. But before we get into the hard type of questions we'll be asking you later, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit better and, and have people understand that researchers are people too with real interests. So what we'd like to start off with, tell us about what is one weird or strange thing that you panic bought during this pandemic period? Yeah, I panic bought, well, so I should say I'm also a new parent. I had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think like, thank you, she's amazing. And so between like the new parent anxiety plus the pandemic anxiety, I think the weirdest thing I bought was like five buckets. I was like, we need buckets. And so yeah. I just purchased a ton of buckets and they're just sitting on our porch. No, Two of them are in use. Like buckets to carry the baby? <laughs> uh, more buckets for like hand washing things or... Oh, yeah. Like mopping, mopping buckets, that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe? like collecting what I thought, like I thought we were going to have like this package system where like we leave it in the bucket one for a day and then bucket two mm. for a day, oh. you know, because it was early and... Yeah. yeah. So I, I bought a bunch of buckets. Wow. Wait, can I just jump in here? Haley, what's the weirdest thing you panic bought? Oh my gosh. I have, I think I have 193 Amazon orders in the past six months. So I literally have bought the whole internet. I can't even identify <laughs> what the weirdest thing is because I just see things. I bought an under desk elliptical machine where you <laughs> pedal your feet under your desk. I didn't even go into the office at the time. I have no desk. I just needed, I saw this and I was like, sure $99 seems like a good amount of money to spend so I can be physically active all day long so I guess that would be the weirdest but I, I have bought the whole internet what about you have you bought anything weird I didn't I wouldn't say that anything super weird what I did do though is I panic bought food mm. to the point of like stocking up our fridge and freezer with stuff that we are never going to eat and then what's worse is one day I somehow accidentally left the freezer door oh, open no and broke it so that we then had to frantically call our neighbors to say, can we throw a bunch of stuff into your freezer while we figure this out? And fortunately my wife did fix the freezer. Oh, well, it's good that you live with someone handy like that. That's, that's it perfect. It really is, because I am <laughs> the opposite of handy. You have other skills, don't, don't feel bad. Thank you. 
Okay, Anusha, tell us, what's your favorite drink? So I've been drinking a lot of coffee these days, mm, yeah. but generally I really like white tea. I feel like tea for me is the sort of like miracle elixir that can sometimes mm. like change just your outlook. And then I, I have to give a little bit of a shameless plug. My brother has a high-end tea company. It's called Young Mountain Tea. And so I like the white tea that they sell. The Kamauan white is really nice. I have a good friend who is very much trying to sell us all on the white tea. What what is so great about white tea? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's like I like the flavor, but it also calms me down. It, it's not heavily caffeinated. I like it with hot water, or you can make like a sun tea with cold water. Yeah, I just I find like it helps me come back to equilibrium, and it helps me focus too. Is sun tea like iced tea? I've never heard that word before. Oh, you just put tea leaves and water in a container, and then you put it out in the sun, and then you shake it occasionally. Now, could you do that in a bucket? <laughs> yeah, I should be able to repurpose my buckets. I guess if your bucket is food safe, you could. Okay. Well, if they're just sitting there, you clean it out. You can have a big store of, of sun yeah. tea. That sounds like a terrific suggestion. Yeah, thank you, Matt. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, well, I'm glad we got to know a little bit about you. And congrats on the new baby. That's very exciting. Super um, exciting. And thank you even more for making time to, to visit our podcast because we have both been there at separate times and it's it's challenging to find time for anything with a new baby. So we will get right to the point and start talking with you about matching. So matching is one of these basic epi concepts. Most intro epidemiology courses cover it in some way. So just to make sure that everyone listening is on the same page, what is matching and why would we do it? Yeah, so matching is a way of pre-processing data. So before you do your analysis, like you design your analysis and then you conduct it. And so this is in the design phase. And so the goal of matching is to balance the distribution of confounders between the treated and control groups. So like I tend to use secondary data. So the process would be like you, you get your data set, you clean the variables, then you match on the measured confounders to create balance across the exposed and the unexposed groups. So you usually end up creating like a smaller data set and then you can conduct your analysis within the matched analytic sample. And so in this matched analytic sample, ideally the, tr well, the treatment is more likely to be independent from the measured covariates, so you have a stronger case for causal inference. So matching in some ways presents a trade-off between smaller sample size, but you have better common support and balance in your matched analytic sample. I'm curious to know, is matching your go-to strategy for dealing with confounding? Yeah, so I drank the matching Kool-Aid and all mm. of my dissertation work is using matching, and then I had some residual questions and I conducted the simulation analysis and now it is no longer my go-to strategy. I still believe in matching. There's a lot of really great properties, but I don't match as often as I used to. And can you say why? What is it that changed you? Yeah, like what we found in this analysis is that, so we compared ordinary least squares regression, propensity score matching, and course and exact matching. And what we found was that when your OLS results are... And OLS refers to ordinary least squares regression. Unbiased. There's a bias variance trade-off with matching. And so typically you would think that as you reduce bias, you increase your variance. But with OLS, if your OLS results are unbiased, there are no benefits to matching because your OLS results are unbiased, but there are costs to matching in the form of increased variance. So what we found was that if your OLS estimate 
estimates are unbiased, you're paying the cost for matching, but not getting a benefit. The point estimates are the same, but the variance is bigger. And so I think we'll circle back to finding some of those terms when we talk a bit more about propensity scores. But can you just say, so what's the reason why you're losing that? Is it because when I do the matching, I have to somehow do something analytically? Or is it because I'm essentially throwing away people from my data set? Yeah, so I, I think it's because you're throwing people away from your data set and you're not gaining anything by throwing them away. So like you have better common support, which is like I think of common support as two overlapping histograms in the univariate case where one is your exposed group and one is your unexposed group. And so if you have good common support, those two histograms are coincident. And if you have poor common support, there's less overlap between the histograms. So let me interrupt you then. I, I don't know this term common support. Can, uh-huh. you, can you say what that is? Yeah. So common support is kind of similar to positivity in epi. And so if something's off support, it's similar to a positivity violation. And if something's on support, you think of it as no positivity violation. So in other words, it seems to me what you're saying is that common support means that I have good overlapping distributions of my confounders such that I could control this confounding analytically rather than through matching. So yeah, if you're looking, thinking about a single variable, the exposed and the unexposed group, there's good overlap in your variable x1 in the exposed and unexposed group. And if there's poor common support, there's less overlap, or you could have no common support, which is when you have a positivity violation. I wish our listeners could see your hands going in and out like histograms, because (laughs) she's using her hands to demonstrate what two histograms would look like. So if you have your hands out in front of you, and you sort of overlap your thumbs a little bit, overlap your pointer fingers a bit, that would be an idea of common support. And if you separate your hands and your hands are not touching each other, that would be the idea of off support or no common support. Is that is that a good description? Yes, thank you for that. I, overlapping histograms is like my favorite graph. I put it in grants, I put it in papers. I think that it's just really intuitive when you think about overlapping histograms. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's a simple way to understand a concept. So I hope our viewers, our viewers, our listeners are sitting, uh, listening to our podcast, overlapping their hands and taking them apart from each other to understand <laughs> this concept better. Related to the idea of matching in sort of an introductory sense, sometimes in intro epi courses, we hear about this idea of individual level matching, where you have one participant who has, uh, you know, let's say age 50, and you want to match on age, so you go out and find another participant that's uh, also age 50 or around that. So that would be the idea of individual matching. Another idea that sometimes people talk about is frequency matching. So you match a group of individuals with a particular age distribution to another group of individuals with a particular age distribution. And so that is called frequency matching. These two ideas are are sometimes important when you're learning it at the introductory stage. Matt, do you have anything to add to to the distinction between those two concepts? I would make one distinction here. One thing that we sort of haven't talked about yet is when we're thinking about matching, it really depends a bit on whether we're talking about a, a prospective study mm-hmm. where we have to enroll people or a retrospective study. And I, in this case, I'm going to say retrospective simply means that the data already exists, which is really not the best definition of retrospective. But the data already exists, then you know I can think about how to match people very differently than if I have to enroll people into a study 
and make sure I have balanced distributions of my confounders with respect to my exposure groups. But, you know, one way to think about it is if I'm doing a prospective study where I enroll people, you know, I might say, okay, I have three characteristics that I want to match on, you know, age within five years, sex, and pick whatever your third variable is. And so every time I find a person who has characteristics in those three categories, I have to find somebody who matches exactly on those three categories or characteristics in the unexposed group. With frequency matching, I would say then my goal is simply not to match everyone so that they're perfectly, everyone has a perfect analogous match in the unexposed group with respect to those three characteristics. Instead, I'm just keeping my eye on those categories to say, looks like I've still got a reasonable distribution of age, sex, and say race is my third variable. But if I don't, then I want to keep an eye on enrolling people who would represent that underrepresented part of that distribution. And I think that raises a very important point related to what Anusha mentioned earlier, where she often uses secondary data, what you just called retrospective, that kind of data that you have access to that's already been collected. And it's a sort of pre-processing step. Whereas if you're going out and finding individuals, you are doing the matching, I suppose, in real time or live. The problem, and I think an important distinction, is that when you are going out and matching your study subjects, that is something that can never be undone. That is always going to be a characteristic of your data set, and you will never be able to study variation in your matched characteristics. So coming back to the age example, if you match on age, you cannot then later go and study the effect of age on your outcome because you've matched on it in your data set. Is that not correct? No, I, I see no reason why you cannot look at the effect of something that you have controlled the distribution of at enrollment. Like if you think of a, a prospectively enrolled cohort study. We just put up some flyers and we see who enrolls themselves in the study. People are going to self-select into the study based on certain characteristics. The fact that we have essentially set up our enrollment so that we're just making sure those distributions are even really doesn't change the relationship with the outcome at all. So there's no reason why you can't continue to look at any other factor in relation to the outcome. I think possibly what you're you're getting at is in case control studies. Right. Where in case control studies, if we match on particular factors, then we, we are going to have trouble looking at the relationship between other exposures and the outcome. Yeah, I agree with Matt, because I was thinking like with matching, I mean, I think about it as trying to replicate a randomized experiment within your smaller data set. So in a randomized study, the goal is that the background confounders are the same, or like if they're different, they're only different randomly. It's not systematic differences. But it, with an RCT, you can still do like look for heterogeneous treatment effects. But so I think that that's a helpful way to think about matching is like you're trying to uncover this randomized experiment within your larger data set. Yeah, thank you for clarifying. I guess I always have this idea in my head that with prospective data collection, once you match, it's not something that can ever be undone. And so you need to be very careful about choosing to match for a variety of reasons. I was under the impression that it affected what you could study, but I, I see that that might be incorrect in my mind. But also, it, it makes it harder to find study participants if you're trying to recruit individuals, you know, to match with another person. So, so those are some considerations that you might want to think about when you're you're attempting to do matching. 
Related to this idea that you just brought up of thinking of matching as it relates to RCTs, we had a guest on the podcast, Daniel Westry, a few episodes ago, who talked about the counterfactual framework. And I was wondering if you could comment on how matching fits in, matches with the counterfactual framework that we all have heard about. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap with matching and the counterfactual framework because the goal of matching is to achieve exchangeability. And so if you think about the gold standard randomized experiment, with randomization, the treated and control groups have the same distribution of the background covariates, both measured and unmeasured. Or And then the differences in the covariates are random. They're not systematic with a, with a randomized experiment. And so the goal of matching is to create a subpopulation where the measured covariates are the same or similar between the treatment and control groups. So with the randomized experiments, they're similar on the measured and the unmeasured. With matching, we don't have the unmeasured, so we can't match on them, but they're similar on the measured. And so ideally, we want to use matching to make causal inferences. So I think it does fit well into the counterfactual framework. I really like the way that you've set this up because you said before that matching is really a pre-processing step, which I, I really like that way of thinking about it. But here you're, you're also making the point that it's a pre-processing step that is designed to allow us to create the counterfactual within levels of those things that we match on, at least to the extent that those factors that we're matching on creates the exchangeability conditions that we need for a causal inference. And so I'm curious whether you think that matching as typically goes on in the kinds of data sets that you've worked with or even in prospective cohort studies really does achieve that counterfactual or whether we're really just matching on a few things and there are still going to be other things that we need to control for to create that counterfactual. Yeah, I mean, I think that matching similar to all attempts to make causal inference with randomized data relies on the really strong untestable assumption of no unmeasured confounding. And so it's only if we can make that, if we feel comfortable making that assumption that we think we can make causal inferences. And so I think that that is a challenge with with all causal inference when you're not able to experimentally change the exposure. So, I mean, let me just play the cynic here. And I, I'll say that, you know, I grew up in the epidemiologic world of modern epidemiology. And, you know, the question was always asked, why would you even bother matching? I mean, if you think about matching in a, in a prospective study where you actually have to enroll people, it's going to be expensive. You're going to have to throw people out, as you said. And if at the end of the day, I'm just going to have to adjust for other things, Why bother matching at all? Why wouldn't I just deal with this in the analysis phase? Yeah, so I think that this sounds a little bit similar to me with our to the argument we ended up concluding at the end of our simulations paper, which is that there are some circumstances where matching where you have to match to get the right answer, and there's some circumstances where you can get the right answer even if you don't match. And so it was funny to me when we started this simulations paper. I was like, okay, we're gonna check common support, we're gonna check balance and a couple other things and all of those things ended up going into the appendix because what we actually found was like totally not what I was expecting so like this whole thing was a surprise to me and so we found was that when the relationships between the covariates and the outcome are similar on regions of support and off support the OLS estimates are unbiased so when you extrapolate beyond the region of support you're not biasing your inferences if the relationships of the covariates and the outcome are the same but if the relationship between the covariates and the outcome is different on regions on support versus off support, then your OLS estimates could be biased because when you extrapolate, you're extrapolating the wrong relationship. And so in those cases, you have to match to get the right answer. So that's why, kind of like we were discussing earlier, if your OLS estimates are unbiased, 
matching doesn't help. You just lose information and gain variability. If your OLS estimates are biased, well, I was gonna say you have to match to get the right answer, but maybe matching gets you closer to the right answer. I, I mean, like we never know the truth, right? We're always trying to estimate the truth. In simulations, the, the beauty of it is that you do know the truth. And so you can see how close you get to it. And I should caveat this by saying that in our work, we identified one set of scenarios where matching um, outperformed OLS regression, but we only have evaluated nine data structures and there are infinite data structures. So there may be other scenarios when matching methods outperform OLS that we didn't identify. And so in our paper, what we suggested was a rule of thumb so you can empirically determine if your OLS estimates are biased. We said that when matching and OLS estimates are similar and we define similarity as the confidence intervals overlapping, then the OLS estimates are unbiased more often than the matching inferences. While when estimates from OLS and matching are dissimilar, that's the confidence intervals do not overlap, matching inferences were unbiased more often than OLS. And so in our simulated data sets, the OLS estimates were biased when the relationship between the covariates and the outcome was different in the exposed and the unexposed group because of that extrapolation beyond the range of support. That's really helpful. And I think that rule of thumb in particular, I mean, I really enjoyed hearing the description of the paper and, and the surprises you found. A good lesson for everyone that your papers don't always turn out the way you expect or maybe want them to turn out. But, um, I, you know, that rule of um, I think is what we should keep in mind is that if you check your results and the confidence intervals between the matched and unmatched versions of your regression models are similar or overlapping, let's say, then perhaps you don't gain anything. But if they're dissimilar or not overlapping, then potentially it is advantageous to consider the matching approaches. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that one thing that's that we don't know is just how common this is. Mm -hmm. Like how common is it that extrapolation beyond the range of support is gonna give you the wrong estimate? And so there is some literature comparing OLS and PSM results and they- PSM refers to propensity score matching. They find that eight, greater than 80% of the time the results are similar, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that you're using the same confounders in both cases. Like if you're missing a confounder, your results are still going to be biased. Right. Matching is not a magical tool that can adjust for unmeasured variables. Um, yeah. So you've talked about one downside of matching, or I guess a couple downsides of matching in terms of the bias variance trade-off and that you may not be gaining much relative to some traditional methods. Are there other disadvantages? I guess I'm trying to get at what are the pros and cons of matching that, you know, listeners should understand about this approach. Yeah. And I don't want to like throw matching under the bus. Like there are a lot of benefits of matching. Um, it has a lot of attractive properties. And like I said, I drank the Kool-Aid all of my dissertation work was using matching. And so I think some of the benefits are it's very intuitive when you think about the mm -hmm. randomized control trial, there's there's a very clear overlap. I think ma the matching literature really benefits from some exceptionally clear writers and that, you know, methods papers are difficult to understand. And I think a lot of the matching, the researchers who write about matching, just write about it very clearly. So like Elizabeth Stewart writes really well about matching. Gary King and his group, good writers helps makes the method much more accessible. And then I think another benefit of matching is that there's approaches to test if the covariates are balanced. And so you can test if the covariates are balanced. I think some of the cons are that the matching literature is scattered across different fields. And so that just makes it challenging because 
I think this is a bad thing about academia, but it tends to be very siloed. Um, and so Elizabeth Stewart in 2010 actually synthesized all the literature into one paper. Her paper was called Matching Methods for Causal Inference Review and Look Forward. Um, and it came out in statistical science and there are not a lot of equations in it. It's much more, um, it's more intuitive. I think another thing about matching that can be frustrating are there's so many different options. Like just if we think about propensity score matching, there's like nearest neighbor, kernel matching, one-to-one matching, matching with replacement. There's all these different types of matching and it's not clear if one is better than the other or in what scenarios one would be better than the other. And so I think that is a frustration. Uh, And I think matching has a lot of matching specific jargon, like common support, which we discussed earlier. There's a convex hull, which I don't even remember what that means. There's like all this matching specific jargon and that's exacerbated by the fact that the literature is scattered across different fields. So I was reading a paper in preparation for this and these I wrote down just the different words for confounding in different fields. Ooh, I like mm, this. Go. Yeah. yeah. Go for it. So there's omitted variable bias, selection on observables, ignorability, and conditional independence. And that's just for confounding. Lack of exchangeability. Yeah. Lack of exchangeability. That so there's multiple with just within epi, right? And so that those were just the ones that were listed in this one paragraph in this paper. But I think that. But isn't having all those different terms how we maintain job security? <laughs> They need us. We're translators. It's funny that you say this because I was wondering how many soapboxes I was going to get onto today. Mm. Um, So this is maybe the first one and maybe it's the only one. But I get very frustrated because I feel like different disciplines use like really complicated language to make it seem like they're the only people who can do it and make other people feel excluded. So I think academia definitely does this. And like even if you read papers from different disciplines, it can be so difficult to understand, not just because of the language, but because of the, the way people write is different. I've been thinking about all the fields that do this. I think finance does this. And so it makes it seem like, oh, we need to give our money to someone else so that they can help manage it because we can't understand. And then I think that the high-end food community does this and art. Auto mechanics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, could, they could make up a bunch of words and tell me that my car needed a new whatever. And I would say, oh, okay. Okay, yeah, no, I definitely need that. No, it's really frustrating because like a lot of times I think like these things aren't complicated, but it's made to feel really complicated and then they charge charge you a ton of money to make you feel inferior. But, but we happen to be three epidemiologists on this podcast, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, epidemiology is definitely guilty of, oh, of some yeah, of these things, you know, as well. And so not to throw the auto mechanics of the world or, you know, whoever's an auto mechanic listening, I value <laughs> you because it's it's part of what each of us do. We could definitely work harder, I think, to break down some of those silos, but it's part of what makes team science valuable is that I need other people with other understanding, even if it's just understanding of terminology to help translate things. But but I, I share your soapbox, so I'm, I'm up on it with you um, because it, it is very frustrating, especially if you're doing work, you know, that you could benefit from reading some economics paper or something and, and you just give up because the words are so frustrating. To build on that point and to go back to the point you were making earlier, I would certainly agree with you that I think all of those very specific matching techniques, so you know, we haven't really gotten into it, but you mentioned there are these different approaches to matching, particularly with propensity scores, but is one that much better than the other that 
we really need to be spending a lot of time arguing about the benefits of one approach over the other versus spending our time making sure that students are well educated in the benefits of matching and the potential harms of matching. So it seems to me that you've laid it out and I would agree that the harms are largely come about with respect to cost, you know, time, time and resources that it's going to take us. And is there actually a benefit? As you say, in some cases, the matching won't actually get us anything and all it will do is will lose precision. Whereas it seems to me there are other cases where you have very finely divided variables like, you know, neighborhood or, or siblingship, where if you don't match, you're not going to have that favorable distribution within your data within which you can conduct a credible analysis and get to the causal effect. So it does seem to me that this is a case where language is in some way following the specificity of the methods that are being created. And I'm not sure that they get us, I, I'm not saying they don't get us additional benefit, but probably probably not as much benefit as we might think. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that a lot of time and effort can be spent looking into like these differences that are actually not, you're not improving your inferences by like doing like these small little differences in the matching technique. Like, maybe theoretically you are, but like in applied settings, it's, it's not clear to me that those are better. And I think there are some simulation papers that do look into that. But I think Kind of to your point, the more important question is identifying when matching is going to benefit you and if you're actually in that world where the matching benefits you. Because if you're not in that scenario, then matching is a solution to a problem you don't have. That's a good explanation. Related to terminology, I, I just wanted to circle back. So you have explained common support and I, I'm understanding what you mean by that. Is common support different or how is it different than balance? This is one of those times when matching specific jargon makes things really confusing. So balance is similar to exchangeability and common support is similar to positivity. So balance and common support are different, but they are related. So the common support criteria is met when there's overlap in the covariates between the treatment and control groups, whereas balance is like checking table one to see if the covariates are similarly distributed between the treatment and control groups. So if your analytic sample is unbalanced, that would indicate that common support is poor and if you restrict your analysis to the region of support, that should improve balance, especially if you apply weights. So we have talked a little bit about, I'll call them fancy words for matching techniques. You know, something like coarsened exact matching is a, is a word you mentioned early on. Can you explain what coarsened exact matching is? Yes, so coarsened exact matching is just one approach for pre-processing data. Um, and so this is the way that one way that you can get your match analytic sample before you do your analysis. So with coarsened exact match, so with propensity score matching, you match on the propensity for exposure. So you, you condense all your confounders into a single variable and you match on that variable. With coarsened exact matching, you match directly on the confounders themselves and you match exactly. And then for if you have like a continuous variable like for birth year or something you could coarsen it just a term for like binning it into like broader categories across categories that you think are the same so like for birth year you could do it in three-year increments or five-year increments and then you match on this combination of raw variables and coarsened variables and then you create weights to get balance across each of the stratum and then so once you have this match weighted analytic sample you conduct your regression in this match sample and then any raw any variables that you coarsened you put the raw version of the variable 
into your regression to adjust for any residual confounding. And why would I want to use coarsened matching over just, just a simple exact matching? So for coarsened exact matching, one of the benefits is that you can, because you can coarsen the continuous variables, you're less likely to throw out observations. So I'm understanding that. Matt, related to something you talked about earlier on, which is frequency matching, do you think that this idea of coarsened exact matching is the secondary data analogous version of frequency matching? Sort of. Um, it seems to me that it's sort of an in-between, really. Essentially, what you're saying is, I'm going to exact match on the things that I can, but I'm going to, for things that are continuous, uh, well, essentially, I'm going to categorize it, right? I mean, it would, uh, Anisha, would that be fair to say I'm, I'm categorizing a continuous variable and matching on the category? Yeah, exactly. And but still retaining the continuous measure. So I'm still matching one person to another person on those on those coarsened factors. Whereas with frequency matching, I'm saying I don't really care if person A is fits each of the three matching categories. All I care is that I'm getting balance on those categories overall. And so if one person doesn't fit perfectly with another person, I'll still include them. I'm just going to keep an eye on these categories and make sure the categories don't get out of whack. And this is, I think, a great point that related to continuous versus categorical variables in the matching world. It, it would seem pretty intuitive and I guess simpler in my mind to think about matching for categorical variables within a, an age range or some kind of category that you've created from your variable. But what I'm hearing you say, Anusha, is that you can also use matching techniques if you have continuous variables that you are um, you know, looking to control for the confounding effects of. Is that right? Yeah, you can definitely use matching when you have continuous confounders. Um, so in, like we just discussed with coarsened exact matching, you basically take your continuous variable, coarsen it into a categorical variable, match, and then you still adjust for the continuous variable in your regression. With propensity score matching, you can also use continuous variables. And so with propensity score matching, you predict the exposure. Um, and so j just typically in a in a logit models, but you could use any sort of regression model um, where you have a binary outcome, assuming you have a binary treatment in this case. And so you can put the continuous variables in flexibly, like you could do a spline, you could do polynomials, you could just do it linearly. But with propensity score matching, you make the assumption that you're modeling the exposure correctly. And then once you, once you model the exposure, you calculate the predicted probability of exposure like with the post-estimation command and then you take the predicted probability of exposure and you match exposed to unexposed people on the predicted probability of exposure so your predicted probability is a continuous variable also and so are you matching someone who has in the so let's say you have somebody in the exposed group with a particular value for a predicted probability are you then looking for someone in the unexposed group with the exact same predicted probability or is it a range that you consider. Yeah, so it kind of, so I, I just said it's a continuous variable, but that's not true. It's a continuous, it's like a, it's between zero and one, right? Yeah. You either have zero probability exposure, 100%. And so there's, the predictor probabilities are within that range. So, I mean, it kind of depends on how you're going to implement the matching. So one approach is to take a caliper and you say anyone with a propensity for exposure within like 0.1 units is a close enough match. 
Okay, so this is without a doubt our most terminology heavy podcast. So I'm going to sort of try to rehash some of what we just talked about. So we have these propensity scores and you create them by using some kind of regression model to predict the propensity or likelihood of your exposure based on a whole range of covariates that you've decided on a whole range of potential confounders. And you can include those confounders however you want flexibly or you know as continuous variables, etc. And then once you have this propensity score, it's some number bounded between zero and one. And uh, you have those for your exposed individuals and your unexposed individuals. And then there's a whole bunch of different strategies you can use to actually match based on the propensity score. So you just mentioned this idea of calipers, which is sort of matching within a, a range that you set. You mentioned point 0.1. So if consider it a match if, if the corresponding person is within point one. What are some other approaches that, that you could use for that matching? I've heard the words nearest neighbor before. One thing with matching, there's a lot of different applications, but one way that's common is you take all of your treated individuals and you find controls. And so with propensity score matching, if you do one-to-one -one nearest neighbor matching, you're basically like, here's my treated unit. Where is a, a control unit that is as close as possible to the treated unit? And so another um, another one is like with replacement. So in that case, multiple control units can be matched to multiple treated units. And this is another case where it's really nice to have the overlapping histograms because a lot of times you'll see that a lot of people who are exposed have probabilities of exposure close to one. And a lot of people who are unexposed will have probabilities of exposure closer to zero. And so in order to get that good balance that we want, you actually, you'll end up using the same control unit for multiple treated units um, in order to attain balance. And so I'm getting the sense that there are multiple ways of doing this type of matching. How do you choose? Is it just your preference? Is it just what you happen to have some code for to make it easiest for yourself? You know, what is one person to do when they're trying to choose what to use? This is why I liked course and exact matching because it's I, th I found there's a much less decision between options that all seem synonymous. And so I think that that is one of the benefits of course and exact matching like the way the method works is to optimize balance and so that makes it just I think easier to understand than propensity score matching. So that's why, like you know, in my dissertation papers, I argued that course and exact matching is better. And it's, I think, it, I just find it more intuitive. So I think I said to you that I was brought up in this tradition of matching, you know, is rarely going to be worth it in any kind of prospective study. That if you already have the data, which is well, sort of a lot of the conditions that you're talking about, then certainly you could consider it. But the question is always why, why throw out data if you don't have to? And I will say to me, while I, I'm sympathetic to those to those arguments, and I do think there is something really we should be thinking about not throwing out data when we don't need to. But to go back to the counterfactual, I mean, the thing that I love about matching is you create distributions for, particularly if we're talking about prospective studies or matching on the exposure, you create distributions that look balanced. So I can produce a table one that looks very much like a table one in a randomized trial. To me, that has a lot of value that people can can look at your table one and say, okay, I understand that you know the balance exists in a way that I can't really understand how it exists when you have to 
put it into a fancy regression model. Now that comes at a cost, as we've said, it comes at a cost of having to throw people out, having to not, not have as, you know, as narrow a confidence interval. But I always feel like when there's a bias variance trade-off, I want to sacrifice variance in favor of, of less bias. And I don't know that everyone agree with that. And I don't know that I have a very good logic for it, but I'm curious what your reaction to that is with respect to matching. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I would rather be unbiased and have wide variance than have a very precise wrong answer. So I think that in that case, like we obviously want our results to be unbiased or our inferences to be unbiased. I think that what we found in our paper is like just because the o just because the balance between the covariates is right doesn't necessarily mean that your bi that your results are biased. You can still get uh, unbiased results even when the covariate are not properly balanced. Yeah, and I, the thing I would say is, to be fair to the people who might sacrifice bias over variance, um, I think they would say error is error is error, and it makes no difference whether that error comes from systematic error or random error. And so if we can make a small trade-off in terms of systematic error, loss of systematic error, but have a large gain in terms of random error, we might actually be doing ourselves uh, a better job. Yeah, I would much rather have random error than systematic really? error. Really? Even though at the end of the day, if it's error, it makes no difference. Like if you get it wrong because of something that you did in your data set, or you got it wrong because of you know the random flip of the coin, you're wrong, you're wrong. And so why does it matter? I just to say, I agree with you. I, from my personal feeling, I would rather sacrifice variance for, for less bias, but I, you know, I don't have a great explanation for why, given that it doesn't really matter why you're wrong. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Okay, but well, if you're unbiased and wrong, you're not, I'm sorry. If you're unbiased, but, but fuzzy, that's a different kind of wrong than being biased and precise. I would rather be un, I would rather be right with like very wide confidence intervals than wrong with tiny confidence intervals because then you could make decisions based on that wrong answer. I would I would absolutely agree with you, but if you could solve that problem by just having very wide confidence intervals and you'll never be wrong. That's true, negative infinity to infinity. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, this conversation about I would prefer wider confidence intervals, it's only true to a point because right. at some point when your confidence interval is so wide, you have a pretty good shot at including the truth in your confidence interval. Um, and so I, I agree that we are aiming for unbiased results. I, I would not want to have the wrong answer with a narrow confidence interval. But part of the problem is we never know which situation we're in, aside from being in simulations. And so that makes these decisions very challenging. And I think that's why these podcast discussions are so important. So we can you know, begin to understand if we use matching, how is that helping us to determine whether we are in a situation of closer to being right hopefully, than, than being wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the great things about simulations is that I learned a ton doing it. It was a real stretch of my skill set, and I learned a ton doing that paper. And I think that it helped me understand exactly what problem matching corrects, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's there's so many different ways you can be wrong <laughs> if you have yeah. an OLS model. And so matching will address this certain way of being wrong, but it won't address all the different ways you can be wrong. Right. So I think that that is one of the great things about simulations is like, especially when you look at equations, like everything is so theoretical and abstract and like, I need to see the numbers. And I think that's one of the great things about simulations. I also think we should test other methodological approaches using simulations to make sure we understand when they work well and to see under what scenarios they break down. Because matching, I thought, always worked better than OLS, but it turns out that that wasn't true. 
I did want to go back and say one thing about matching and prospective studies. I think that it, it can still be useful to match and prospective studies if your outcome data are like really expensive or really difficult to collect and you don't want to collect it for everyone if there's not a match. So that's not how I use matching, but I still think it could potentially be valuable. I would agree with that. I think it just needs to be carefully considered when you are making that decision to do the matching because it's more challenging to undo it than it is, you know, when you're using secondary data. You can try a whole bunch of different techniques. Right. If you stop following someone, you can't find them again. Yeah. You can't undo that decision to unfollow them. That's a lot of negatives. But okay, so this has been a, a really informative conversation for me. Clearly, I had a misconception near the beginning about whether or not you could study a matched variable. And so thank you for, for teaching us a lot about matching. Before we finish, I know you've already plugged some great resources, you know, by Liz Stewart or some other authors. Are there other sources that you would recommend for listeners to look at if they want to learn more about matching aside from your terrific simulation paper that was published in AJE? Yeah, I feel. I hope I didn't talk too much about my own work. But so with no, no, it was great. <laughs> okay, so with, I really like the Stewart paper that came out in 2010. There's also a paper by Daniel Ho that came out in 2007. It's called Matching as a Nonparametric Way of Preprocessing Data. It's something like that. Um, I really like the Stewart paper, so it's called Matching, Review, and Look Forward. And then there's another paper that introduces course and exact matching that I thought was really helpful. I don't know how to pronounce this author's last name. It's I-A-C-U-S, ICUS 2012, and it's called Causal Inference Without Balance Checking, Course and Exact Matching. So I think those three papers are really helpful. Thank you. So for those of you who are interested, look those papers up so you can learn more about the topic. Anusha, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to say for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. I also just want to take a minute to plug our sister podcast, Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like our podcast, we think you'd really like that one as well. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode.